Oh, thanks, Chris. Good morning. Uh, if you could keep your Bibles open there to Ephesians 5, we'll follow the text uh, closely. Let me just pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for its truthfulness, and uh, that you make it powerful to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, his saving death and resurrection. Help us uh, now to understand more about what it means to live uh, in light of his saving power in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my most vivid memories as a young teenager was my first experience of spotlighting. Someone put a shotgun in my hand and we got on the back of a ute and someone had a spotlight and we drove around looking for animals. <laughs> but what, I, what amazed me at the time, because I'd never seen it before, was just against such a really dark background, how much a spotlight illuminated everything and exposed whatever it uh, shone on. And of course, some animals in the spotlight try to run as fast as they can to get out of it, and some are just stunned by its its brightness and can't uh, go anywhere. And these sorts of ideas are important in the Bible. The light exposes what is lurking in the darkness and we need to know how we should deal with it. When God's light exposes what's in us, what do we do about that? But this chapter, of course, that we've just read must be understood in light of chapter 4, verse 1, walk walk worthy of your calling, which in turn must be understood in terms of the previous chapters on God's grace and mercy in making us the people of God. See, attempting to live this way does not make us the people of God. It demonstrates that we are the people of God. What God has done is described in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians and now we're told here in these instructions to walk in a manner worthy of that. Because potentially one of the dangers of preaching a passage like this one, particularly if it's looked at in isolation or independently of what has been said earlier in Ephesians, we end up with the gospel as rules for living which it most certainly is not. (laughs) Because if you recall, Ephesians is about God's big plan to unite all things under the rule of his son. And these instructions must be understood in light of what we once were in contrast to what people who know Christ are now in him. So we were dead in our sins, children of anger and enemies of God. That's what we were. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive in Christ. That's the foundation of this. Without this, having happened or been understood, this chapter is pointless. It's just more morality, more rules. And uh, we live with a lot of rules now, don't we? 
See, we're saved by grace. We've been transferred from darkness to light. Now we're to live accordingly. These instructions are given to people who have been made alive in Jesus and therefore who no longer want to be as they were. See, we want to live under the rule of Jesus and this is a distinctive way of life that has a certain shape. So we live worthy of our calling by putting off our old self, which you would have looked at last time or the time before, and putting on our new self. We, we put on the characteristics of being made alive in Christ. So the last section focused on this old self, new self language, which is the difference between what we were as unbelievers and what we are now as believers. Whereas this section is more about how we, how we now interact with the unbelieving world around us from which we were saved. Kids, when they're younger anyway, love to imitate their parents. Sometimes when they get older, they want to do the opposite. <laughs> but Paul is telling us to be like our Heavenly Father. Imitate God. Imitate God in his great love towards sinners. Imitate God in his self-giving love. Imitate God in his holiness and righteousness. Our culture is good at talking and speculating, not always good at action. The Christian life should be characterised by being like God's son. So verse 2 finished off, walk in the manner of Christ and his sacrificial love for God's people. And verse 3 basically said, avoid the opposite of that, which is self-gratifying sexuality and coveting or desiring what other people have. The difficulty, of course, is that we're immersed in this, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, Sexual immorality, greed, obscene talk, coarse joking. There's a book out that's not bad called Respectable Sins. They're sins that our culture just completely overlooks. In fact, the government wants you to be greedy because it helps the economy. And this is the culture we live in and this is what Paul saying, is saying here. Be like Jesus, not the world. If we desire to be seen as the people of God, then we need to avoid doing or approving these sorts of things. We need to be prepared to be persecuted rather than, than to participate in these things. In fact, Paul goes as far here as saying these sorts of things should not even be named among God's people. There shouldn't be a whisper of it. And unfortunately, we all know that's not true. This doesn't mean, of course, we shouldn't talk about them at all and how we can manage them and confess them and own up to them and deal with them. It just means don't talk about these things in such a way as to legitimate or excuse them. 
we all know the process. We start thinking about something a little bit positively. Then we talk about it. It starts taking a bigger part in our life and so on and so on. It's the slippery slope argument. Don't start going down the slope. (laughs) And verse 4 continues this or fleshes it out a bit more. Don't engage in shameful or filthy talk or crude jokes or foolish discussions. Rather, and this is interesting, let thankfulness be characteristic of our talk. Sometimes it has been observed that Christians are known more for what they don't do rather than what they do do. But really it's about both. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Back in chapter 4 and many of Paul's letters, he talks about putting off our old self and putting on our new self in Christ. So we get rid of the filthy, that's what we don't do anymore, and we put on the new, the clean, the stuff worthy of Jesus. Crudeness and covetousness express self-centeredness. Gratitude expresses thankfulness and gratefulness for God's generosity in the right and wise and proper use of sexuality and material possessions. And these underlying sinful desires have been around in all cultures of all time. Who would have thought? Sex and money. But our culture, since Sigmund Freud, has tried to scientifically justify them. The arguments go like this. The idea is that unmet desires and frustrations cause damage or psychological sickness. So it's legitimate to satisfy all our desires. Freud would say shame is even a wrong category to use. And our culture has picked that up now, hasn't it? Don't be ashamed of expressing who you are, your desires. But of course the gospel has a much better analysis than that, which says we do have legitimate desires, but they've been distorted by sin. Some of our desires are simply wrong or shameful, And even our desire for legitimate things is uh, excessive and perverted. See, we desire good things, but we desire them in the wrong way. God gives us blessing and stuff and we turn it into an idol. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control, won't lead to unhealthy repression it will lead to greater enjoyment of good things because they are engaged in their proper purpose. Thankfulness and gratitude are fundamental to the Christian life because God has caused us to see what we were as his enemies, as children of wrath, and where we were headed without Christ... See, a good question to ask ourselves is if we can't thank God for something, should we be doing it? And verses 5 and 6 are two other good reasons for not doing such things. Firstly, verse 5, people who practice such things have no place in God's kingdom. 
That's a pretty good reason. Much better that we prefer to be left out and rejected by unbelievers around us than to be left out of God's eternal kingdom. And this verse is quite interesting because Paul describes the immoral and greedy person as an idolater, as someone who worships idols. This simply means that the objects of their affection and worship are not God, but something else. For a greedy person, they prefer money and possessions. Uh, For an immoral person, they prefer improper pursuit of pleasure rather than God. There's a very helpful book around from a biblical Christian counselling movement in, in America. It's the author's Ed Welch and it's called Addictions. And the subtitle's Magnificent, A Banquet in the Grave. And in this book, he describes addictions as a worship disorder. And verse 6, a further reason for avoiding all these sins, because they arouse God's anger. The beginning of this verse is significant because it warns us not to be deceived about the reality of God's anger against human sin. In our day, there seems to be this false sense of security that God's anger will never come or God's anger is just like a slap on the hand. But Paul's warning here is don't be sucked in by empty words. God's anger is a horrifying reality that will be expressed against those who do not turn away from their sin. Why would we follow people who have no regard for God? It's difficult to think about these things, but we need to come to grips with all that God says in his word about himself and us. And so Paul's command, verse 7, it doesn't say don't associate with them, it says do not partner or partake with them. This is not saying don't associate with unbelievers, otherwise how would have we heard the gospel? It's more specifically saying don't partake with them in their disobedience, in their lack of regard for God. The only other time this word partake is used in Ephesians is back in chapter 3 verse 6 where Gentiles through Christ can now partake in the promises to Israel. As chapter 2 highlighted in Ephesians, the church is the new Israel of Jew and Gentile brought together under the rule of God's glorious Son. We can't belong to that or partake in that and partake in our former life of being dead in our sins. And this sort of encouragement continues, verses 8 to 14, where we have been transferred from darkness to light. In verse 8, we see a description of becoming Christians. We were once darkness, which represents sin, evil, ignorance of God and death. But for believers, we are now light, which represents purity, knowledge of God and life. And now we've been converted from darkness to light. We ought to walk as children of light. 
And it's significant here that the way this is worded is not that is that the people themselves were darkness and are now light. This isn't talking about our surroundings or background. And of course it has to be that way because we were converted. It wasn't our background or surroundings that was converted. We were transferred. We were changed. And this is important because when you look throughout church history, one of the first doctrines or teachings of the Bible to be diluted is human depravity. At the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther thanked one of his opponents for raising this issue. And he said, thank you. This is the hinge on which all turns. And then he wrote one of, one of his most well-known works, The Bondage of the Will, describing our enslavement to sin and our love for darkness. And because we've been changed in the Lord, we can now walk differently and bear the fruit of light. That's a weird combining of metaphors, isn't it? <laughs> to bear the fruit of light. These characteristics here, goodness, righteousness and truth, they're characteristics of God himself. So back in verses 1 and 2, we were told, imitate God. God wants his people to reflect him. And there's a sense in Ephesians that this isn't just an individual thing, but it's how we do it as a body that reflects God's glory back to him. So you, if, if you have a view of the Christian life that's just me and Jesus, what does love one another mean? See, we, 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 the New Testament won't let us get away with that individualistic view. It's how we live together as God's people that reflects the light. And because we have become light in the Lord and working out this fruit of light, we will be able to work out how to live, what to do. What is pleasing to the Lord, verse 10. One of the mistakes I made as a young Christian was thinking of God's will primarily as things like what job should I get, who should I marry, which town should I live in. But God's will is primarily about who we are. Because from that will flow all these other decisions. If you're not a godly, servant-minded person who loves righteousness, going somewhere else won't change that. It will just mean you're not a godly, servant-minded person in another place. But more positively, vice versa, if you are walking according to the outcomes or fruit of light, wherever you are, you will find some way to serve and be a blessing. And bearing the fruit of light might cause you to see that you can serve in a particularly helpful way somewhere else. 
And so obviously we're to avoid the opposite things, verse 11, which is the unfruitful works of darkness. And this is, of course, a deliberate expression. What value is there in the fruit of darkness? Where will it get you? What does it lead to? What's the point of it? In fact, we're not only to avoid participating in the works of darkness, but we're to expose them. The grammar here is important. It's not that we're to confront unbelievers in a judgy sort of way, so we're better than them. Specifically here, we are to expose the deeds of darkness for what they are. We are to call wickedness, wickedness. We're to call what's shameful, shameful. Uh, Verse 12. And of course, this could get us in trouble now, especially if we maintain the biblical position on homosexuality and gender. It seems here that we are to do this also by word and action. See, there's no use claiming God's way is best if our life doesn't reflect that. So if as believers we aren't living as those who bear the fruit of light, then we need to think hard about this passage. This is a lot like how John the Apostle likes to write. In his letters as unbelievers, we hated the light because it exposes our shameful works. This is where testimonies are good, isn't it? Hearing examples in people's lives of how once the shamefulness of sin has been exposed in them and they've been come under the transforming power of the Lord Jesus. We live in a time when people boast about how much they sin. (laughs) But we need to expose sin for what it is. Sin is the reason we live in the world that we do now instead of the paradise that God originally made. There's a good parable adapted to the Somali people with whom I worked for a while. Uh, One day a man brings home a much stronger lamp uh, to light the hut in which his family lived. But in the morning his wife angrily tells him to get rid of it because it has brought all these spiders and scorpions into their hut. And of course the point is that the light didn't bring those things. (laughs) They were always there. The stronger light just exposed them. And this is where verses 13 and 14 are going. What God does and what he will do in an ultimate way is to shine a big bright light on everything done in this world especially what has been done in secret and besides the purpose of exposing sin, the other purpose of God's great big spotlight is that it will bring his people into the realm of light. See, there are two responses in the Bible uh, to, to the penetrating light of God through his word. One is to recoil back into the darkness to keep ourselves from any exposure 
because we don't want what's in our heart to be revealed. But the other is to see our works of darkness for what they are and by God's grace want to abandon them, want to get rid of the filth of them out of our lives. This is why we do no one any favours by dumbing down what the Bible says. What's the point in trying to partially cover up the light so that people can't fully see their sins for what they are when that is the very thing that gives them opportunity to repent? We really don't want to be in the situation where we tell someone being an enemy of God is not that serious. And to support all this, Paul, verse 14, combines two references from Isaiah, from chapter 26 and chapter 60. And the basic gist of this, if you read them carefully again later, is that the light of God's salvation shining on his people will be the reason that the nations come to the God of Israel as he establishes the renewed Jerusalem from which the Lord reigns over a world made righteous. But this cannot happen if sin is not exposed, if this light is not shone down, if it is minimised. In Isaiah, Israel failed to be a holy nation and priestly kingdom that represented their God, Yahweh, well. But the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, he didn't fail. He is the light of the world. He's brought light to the Gentiles. Now that light needs to shine. So light, in light of this passage, the implications for us are really pretty straightforward, aren't they? If you are thinking and acting wrongly, crudely, covetously in regard to material things and sexuality, then put off those things. Drag them into the light of God's word to be exposed and get rid of them. See them for what they are. Then put on characteristics that accord with living worthy of Christ. Let the light of God's word continue to expose in us what properly belongs to the darkness. Some other things we can think about. If sin is so good and able to deliver what it promises, why does it have to be done in the darkness? If there are things in us that we don't want put into the light, why is that? See, we need to stop hiding things in the darkness and expose it, which is a step towards then putting it off and putting on the things that are better. Things that don't falsely promise life, but things that deliver life. We need to remember, again, this is not self-help therapy. 
The only basis on which we can do this is that God has made us alive in Christ. We were dead, unable to help ourselves, enslaved by sin. God made us alive in his glorious son. So if God has changed us from being dead in our sins and his enemies, then we need to stop uh, trying to hide things in the darkness and we need to bring them out and expose them to the light and put them off like filthy clothes and put on the new things that belong to life. There was a Christian singer back in the 70s called Larry Norman Some of you here will be old enough to know who some considered the Christian equivalent of Bob Dylan and he sang a song cataloguing all the problems and sin within the culture of his time and at the end of the song he just sang don't ask me for the answer I've only got one that a man leaves his darkness when he follows the sun. Let me um, pray for us. Father, we thank you for your powerful, penetrating word that leaves nothing unturned, nothing unexposed uh, to the light of your holiness and righteousness, uh, that it tells the truth about us and our life outside of Christ, uh, explains to us your extraordinary grace and mercy through Jesus and the power of your transforming action in making us alive in your Son. Uh, Please, for any here that do not yet know that transformation, that you would work in their hearts to convict them, to cause them to see their need to no longer be your enemy. Uh, For those of you whom you have converted, please cause us to uh, really get rid of sin, to take this word seriously, to expose what continues to be in our hearts to the light of your word and to imitate you. Uh, We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.